0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark. I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of the Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week, making a return visit, is the nation's premier columnist, George F. Will, who has a new book. It is called American Happiness and Discontents, The Unruly Torrent, 2008 to 2020. Welcome one and all. George, I want to start with you. I want to talk a little bit about your new book, which is, as always, brimming with insight and wit and lapidary turns of phrase. Um, So one of your um, trademarks as a columnist is your deep immersion in history, most particularly American history. Um, And um, sometimes this is a source of well, at least for your readers, I imagine for you as well. Sometimes it's a source of inspiration, and um, and alternatively, it can be uh, it can offer some perspective on the problems we're facing in the current moment. So I I will just uh, give a, an example uh, from a column that you wrote in uh, April of two thousand seventeen. It's called America's Dark Homefront during World War One. Quote. Woodrow Wilson imposed and incited extraordinary repressions. Quote, there are citizens of the United States born under other flags who have poured the poison of disloyalty into the very arteries of our national life. Such creatures of passion, disloyalty, and anarchy must be crushed out. They are infinitely malignant, and the hand of our power should close over them. And then, unquote, then you go on to describe some of the really quite horrific uh, repressions that were accepted in this country uh, during World War I. Um, So um, when you're presenting um, those examples, is it to just be a reminder of progress, that, that things have been we've lived through some pretty horrific things in our past that's part of it uh, one that's certainly a, a
1: didactic reason another reason is it's just fun <laughs> it, it, it's it's fun to see these things I mean, let me give you an example I, I uh, there's this little tidbit in my introduction to my book I came to Washington in 1970 because Everett Dirksen had died a few months earlier. He had been the leader of the Senate Republicans. They shuffled the leadership. And a Colorado senator named Gordon Allett became chairman of the policy committee, and he said he wanted to hire a Republican academic to write for him. And then is now a Republican academic who's kind of an oxymoron. But (laughs) Everett Dirksen interested me. He uh, is from Central Illinois, as am I and he was from Pekin, Illinois, which for reasons no one quite knows was named after Peking, China. Oh! And and the high school sports teams were called the Pekin Chinks. Oh gosh. Uh, yeah, oh gosh indeed. Uh, a little tidbit that suggests that uh, sensibilities have changed for the
0: better. Uh, I just like things like that. Uh, funny. All right. Well, since you're going down memory lane and remembering when you first came to D.C., I will tell you a story um, about William F. Buckley, who we both knew, um, and a story about you, because um, one time Bill and I were talking and uh, mentioning how much you know, Bill's favorite phrase was that he hated writing, but loved having written, uh, as many writers feel. And I was agreeing with that. And then we were talking about deadlines. And Bill, you know, in his inimitable fashion, he said, aren't li- aren't um, deadlines liberating, right? Because you just know it's going to get done by, by X day and time when you have a deadline. So we agreed on that. And then Bill said, he got that, you know, sort of, that that puzzled look on his face, and he said, "Do you know that George Will enjoys the process of writing?" <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do, I do. You I love that. Yeah, <laughs> I, it, I love to write. It's a
1: physical, tactile pleasure putting sentences together and sentences into paragraphs. I I've never understood this. Oh gosh, it's agony. The great sports columnist, Red Smith, was of the Oh, It's Agony School. He said, writing nothing to it, you just open a vein and bleed. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I don't feel that. I don't understand that. If it's that mm. awful, change change
0: jobs. Right. Okay. Well, um I, I wish I could have your cheerful approach. For me, it's more anxiety-producing and so forth, but, uh, but I, too, like the feeling of having written too much to, to give it up. So when, Scott, uh, when,
1: when Scotty Reston was the bureau chief of the New York Times here in Washington and a regular columnist, he told me he had trouble sleeping the night before he, he knew he was going to have to write a column.
0: Wow even after all those years all those years yes that's amazing uh, that's yeah yeah people are people are endlessly interesting okay well um I, I, I'm curious so you've written um, at length um in your last book and also in your columns about how you changed your mind about certain things over the last number of decades that you've been doing this one of them was about the role of the courts. Um, but I want to challenge your cheerfulness uh, because you you describe yourself that way in the introduction to this book. And, uh, you, you know, you can't imagine, you know, being happier with what you do for a living and so on, which is which is wonderful. Um, but let me let me challenge it a little bit because, you know, there have been a number of essays and we talked about one of them last week on this podcast about the, the Donald Kagan essay. Um, which I'm sure you read, uh, sorry, Robert Kagan, his son, Robert Kagan's essay, um, about, uh, you know, the dangers to the republic. Our constitutional crisis is already here, he said. Elliot Cohn has something along the same lines in, in the Atlantic. Um, These are not uh, frivolous people, and they're deeply, deeply worried about the direction of things. Uh, Eliot uh, uh, quotes um, Yeats's famous line from The Second Coming, that in our time, the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Um, Do you have any of that sense? Yes, uh, I deeply
1: resent the idea that I'm cheerful. Uh, <laughs> I, I very much enjoy doing what I'm doing, but uh, my stance toward current conditions in the immediate future is summed up in the phrase uh, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. I'm trying to be cheerful, but there's so much to be uncheerful about. Uh, we, we now, we are a nation that is no longer educating elites that believe in the country. And it's it's an astonishing failure. Uh, And no nation is is going to prosper when it has elites who think or are faintly embarrassed by or feel they ought to be faintly embarrassed by the the, the country's heritage. And with regard to what uh, Robert Kagan and others have been writing about, it is simply astonishing that a large majority of one of our two major parties, that have, the parties that have framed our political presidential competition since 1856, a large majority accept the broad contours of the argument that the last election was stolen. There being no evidence of this whatsoever.
0: Uh, that doesn't matter. That's what makes this alarming. So let's probe that a little further. Um, you know, the the political party uh, that you were associated with for many years that started over in neighboring Wisconsin, uh, the Republican Party, chose in 2020 not to publish a platform at all, simply to say, whatever the leader is for, that's what we're for. <laughs> um, and um, arguably, While the threat from the woke left and the closed-mindedness of the left, and as you say, the teaching, you know, our uh, uh, teaching our young not to revere the country or love, in many instances, the country in which they were raised, you know, how do you respond to this argument? The people who are uh, graduates of those institutions that are supposedly destroying the the, uh, youth of tomorrow— tend to be less willing to overturn the structures of American democracy than the party that is constantly proclaiming in the loudest possible fashion its deep patriotism.
1: Yes. It's, 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 it's a very strange situation in which the nature of patriotism itself is being contested. This was written about very well by Stephen Smith, a political philosopher at Yale who says progressive patriotism is aspirational patriotism. It's patriotism, it's loyalty to and love of a country as it might come to be if people would just shape up and do what the progressives want. Uh, and the, on the right, people say, I, I love the country, but uh, I don't like its universities, its media, its entertainment system. And pretty soon you're down to a, a sort of a rump America that, yeah. that they like. And it's this is why we have this very peculiar situation here where a nation founded on a good idea, the pursuit of happiness, is full of people whose happiness is exhausted by the unhappiness of the other tribe. Right. Um,
0: okay, let's bring in the rest of our... Our crew here does anybody else want to weigh in on any of the things we've just discussed if not we can move on to our next topic Well
2: I mean I, I would love to ask just a quick question of Mr. Will if uh, if he's uh, willing to entertain it Um uh, Yes uh, this is uh, it's great to to get this book I've been reading George uh, since I, I was a wee tot <laughs> I think the first the first uh, of his uh, compilations of columns I received were bought Was uh, Suddenly, which I believe came out uh, right as the Cold War was coming to an end. Uh, And I've been reading them ever since and learning ever since about how to uh, be a columnist and to do it well. Um, The one question I had, which uh, I know uh, um, George Will has uh, very strong views of, is the place of of the man Donald Trump in this book. This is a a compilation of columns from 2008 to 2020. Uh, Donald Trump was president for four of those years, and if you go to the index of this book, you will find a, a very scant number of pages devoted to this man. Uh, who seems to be so much kind of at the center of the maelstrom of of what we've already been talking about? Um, wh- why why is that? What I assume you I mean I've been reading you in the in the post through uh, through the Trump years and you did write about him more than one would expect from looking at that index. So that means that you made a choice not to reproduce all that many columns that were devoted to him and his antics for those four years or five years, if you count the, the year before he actually became president. So I, I'm just curious, why that decision?
1: Yeah, the, my friends at the Post editorial page used to nag me a bit to write more about Trump, because when I did, I, I, I was so scalding it lit up their scoreboard, and they actually have a scoreboard where they can see in real time uh, the readership traffic toward one story or another. Uh, the problem, as uh, I explained to them, is he's boring. Uh, first of all, there's not a there was hardly a scarcity of writings about Trump. Uh, Trump, uh, for both uh, li- liberals and, and Trumpians, he played the role of God. That is, he explained absolutely everything. Whereas, in fact, he's an open book. Who's been reading himself to the country for 30 years? He has changed nothing in his repertoire. Uh, except he now substitutes China for what where, where he used to speak about Japan as the next coming uh, superpower. Uh, he has one pedal on the organ; he's worked it forever, and I'm just—it's just—he's not interesting to me. And, I, and that's one of the reasons. That's, that's one of the reasons I'm vaguely cheerful about 2024, is I do think that when an entertainer becomes a bore. Uh, he's, he's in deep trouble, and he is fundamentally and always an entertainer. Uh, so it, it just, when I, I'm a lapsed political philosopher, I, I've trained for that and briefly taught political philosophy. And when I write columns, I try to locate uh, the subject of the column in close proximity to some principle of lasting interest. Which is why I think uh, I can get away with collecting columns, because I, th- I think people come back and say, yeah, I see the, the relevance here. Uh, and Trump is not that interesting. Populism is interesting. Demagoguery is interesting. But do we have to illustrate everything with regard to that man? Okay. Linda. Linda.
3: Well, um, uh, you know, as I was um, in Colorado the last few weeks, uh, and I remember Gordon Allen very well, by the way, uh, George, uh, yep. he was a senator from the state that I grew up in. Uh, but as I was there, I, I visited with some friends who... Um, are not particularly political people, but one thing they are is fervent Trumpists. And it was a very um, interesting time I had discussing things with them. And and I realized that what seems to motivate a lot of people on the Trumpist right is not that they are in favor of something, not even that they um, have any personal regard for Donald Trump. What motivates them is what they are against. And it seems to me that um, if, you, if you scratch just the surface, you find that there is a lot of enmity on the right to what they consider the liberal elites, the news media, um, and all of the policies that those elites um, have been promoting for years, including uh, something that I very much believe in, and that is immigration reform. So that... You know, I was just shocked at um, this woman who was my friend and who's very mild-mannered and very cultured and a uh, very pleasant woman. When she started talking about the January 6th riot, the amount of venom that sort of was spewing out of her mouth, her husband had to finally interrupt her. And so I wanted to ask you whether or not you think I became a conservative uh, in, in the world of uh, c- the Cold War. And what uh, motivate, motivated me to vote for Ronald Reagan, the first Republican I ever voted for, was um, my belief that um, only Ronald Reagan could be a challenge to the Soviet Union. Well, you know, the Soviet Union disappeared and and... Some of the motivating factor around the conservative movement, um, I think, um, got very wishy-washy after that. And now we have this, I think, um, just universal rage at the left and what they have done culturally to our institutions, um, what they... um, feel about the country, as you uh, rightly said, uh, that they do not have um, a love of the country that is only an aspirational uh, patriotism that looks to change everything about the country that we have now. Do you think that that um, is something that can be sustained? And how do we get ourselves out of that? How do we get back to being motivated by something we believe in instead of being motivated by that which we hate?
0: George, before you answer, can I just quickly jump in and say that Linda, to summarize Linda's point, it seems that they really hate liberals more than they hated communists. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There you go.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, what Linda's talking about, if I could cast it just slightly differently, I have trouble understanding how one could write legislation. Leave aside immigration, that I understand, but how you can write legislation that would assuage their grievances? In the 19th century, we argued about things that eventually got put into law or taken out of law, fugitive slave law, uh, how to fund the government with land sales or tariffs, uh, should t- should uh, slavery be taken into the territories, and if so, how do, how do you decide this? There were things you could say. There's legislation out there, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the Compromise of 1850. How do you write legislation to assuage grievances that have a lot to do with status and to have a lot to do with the fact that uh, an enormous number of people on the right feel condescended to and despised by people on the left? If you can't write legislation, it's somehow not quite political, and a political party therefore organized around this kind of performative grievances is, is not a political party anymore. It's something else. Am I making any sense? I mean, do you yeah. hear what I'm saying? Someone said, if you, some of the people you're talking to in Colorado, again, immigration is a policy issue. Good. We can talk about that and write laws. But a lot of what's bothering them—the media and the rest—you can't say, "Good, let's." There ought to be a law, and we'll write the law. How do you deal with this? It's—it's—it's it's, it's cultural resentments are sort of
0: above or below or something. It's outside of politics. Yeah. Well, that one of the. Uh, this is Mona again. Uh, one of the. Um uh, issues that most energizes the right, from what I can understand these days, is critical race theory, and there are moves to uh, ban its teaching. Now, that's that's legislation. Now, of course, it's way overbroad, poorly defined, uh, arguably unconstitutional, um, but that might be the kind of legislation they have in mind.
1: It's also the sort of thing that ought to be done at the school board level in Douglas County, Colorado, uh, mm-hmm. and, and other and other places. Uh, as Linda will attest, that uh, Colorado has been ground zero for very local actions about schools. Uh, again, the last thing we want is God save us, Congress or for that matter, even state legislatures getting involved. When state legislatures decide to take up a, a secondary, primary and secondary school curricula, the results are not good, and you wind up in Dayton, Tennessee. <laughs>
4: right. Uh, Bill Galston. Yeah. Uh, George, I, I note with interest that your one direct quotation so far in this discussion was from a uh, cultural Marxist, Antonio yeah. Gramsci. That's right. Uh, uh, but... Uh, <laughs> But move, <laughs> moving right along, since I've continued to ply the trade that you fled for greener pastures, uh, I do have a question that I've been wanting to ask you for a very long time. Uh, one of your earliest and best-known books uh, was a volume called State, uh, Statecraft as Soulcraft. Uh, I have a feeling that since you wrote that book, you've become less enthusiastic about the soul crafting business, at least as a concern of the state. Uh, If that is correct, uh, could you describe for us and our vast listening audience what led you to change your mind?
1: Uh, I I don't quite think Bill, that I've really changed my mind. Let me tell you how I've evolved, <laughs> <as the> politi- <laughs> uh, uh, how I've grown, as the politicians say. Uh, Statecraft is soulcraft, uh, and I can't tell you the permutations of the title that I heard when I was traveling to promote that book. I mean, we have here today on, on Eyewitness Dayton or on Good Morning Pittsburgh, George Will, the author of Stagecroach as Stagecraft. And, uh, anyway, I gave the Godkin lectures at Harvard, and these lectures became this book, in which I argued that the subtitle of the book was Statecraft to Soulcraft, What Government Does, meaning what government cannot help but do. By sustaining a kind of economy and by st- sustaining a regime of certain practices, it shapes its citizens. Can't do otherwise, so we ought to think about it. That was really the, the essence of my argument in Statecraft to Soulcraft. Uh, I, I did, uh, Bill. That was in ni- I gave those lectures in 1981, and since then I've spent uh, 40 more years in Washington and have acquired a a deeper reservoir of skepticism about the ability of, of modern government to act uh, constructively, particularly on matters like this. I said in Statecraft to Soulcraft, the classic example of Soulcraft is the uh, uh, public accommodation section of the 1964 Civil Rights Act when. We said as a country, A, we're going to stop insulting people in public in front of their children by turning them away from restaurants. And we're going to make people swim together and go to school together because it's good for their souls. It will change the way they think. And you know what? It worked. It worked resoundingly. So that was soulcraft. But I haven't abandoned that. I I would take back nothing I said about the Civil Rights Act what i what i now say and it's developed at great length in a chapter in my uh, book the conservative sensibility is that capitalism itself a market economy is soul craft a market economy makes for a polite and cooperative society and cooperative people and polite people Uh, To take a minor example, you walk into an American shop, the first words you hear are, how may I help you? Uh, A market society is a society of spontaneous order among cooperating individuals. So I'm a bit more libertarianish than I used to be, uh, partly because of, uh, I won't say despair, but increased skepticism about the central government. But I I, still take entirely seriously the fact that the nature of the regime has an impress on the souls of those who live under the regime. And I, so I, I worry about exactly the same stuff with, mm-hmm. some, with some new conclusions.
4: Yeah, uh, that, that makes sense. Although I would point out that the market economy, which we still have, has not done quite as good a job of civilizing us in recent decades as it once might have. Which I agree with that. A deeper thought.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would, I, I would agree to that. I, but I would not say that the market economy is making us uncivilized. I'm say, I would say the market economy, for all its civilizing effects, those effects cannot combat autonomous cultural coarsenings that have not to do with the, the economy.
0: Which brings us to our next topic, be- perfectly actually, because we're going to discuss Facebook, which is a product of the free market that many people believe is coarsening and possibly poisoning our culture. Um, this week we had uh, a Facebook outage was down for something like five hours our own damon linker wrote a column talking about how you know the millennium had arrived for those five hours it, wasn't it wonderful um but uh facebook is also uh, now facing a whistleblower um, who is saying you know has, has left the company and brought a big trove of documents showing that facebook is perfectly aware that it's um it's it's Platforms exacerbate depression and eating disorders and anxiety among teenagers, for for example. Um, but that they uh, choose to permit that to happen rather than to behave responsibly in the name of profit. So um, let me start with you, Damon, since you wrote about this. Um, you 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 said we have to wonder whether Facebook is a is a useful entity that just has externalities like pollution and therefore we should just regulate it, or whether it's more like a criminal enterprise, in which case you just outlaw it. So those were the two choices that you gave. I'm not saying necessarily those are the only two, but uh, care to elaborate.
2: Yeah. I mean, my point was simply that yeah, and in general, I agree. Uh, I think I plugged uh, something uh, that Clarence Thomas wrote in a decision uh, a few months ago that kind of gestured in this direction, I think a little sloppily, but in an interesting way, that we don't, we don't have adequate law and even thinking about these technology companies, the social media companies, because it's not clear what category to put them in. And so it's not clear whether if we're going to regulate them, uh, do we regulate them? along the lines of, uh, of a utility or along the lines of a public accommodation. Uh, when it comes to free speech, that's a little unclear. And then for the purposes of, of the discussion about Facebook, uh, is the problem as we see them, like, for instance, the whistleblower's uh, testimony In Congress, I believe on Tuesday of this week, uh, focused on the question of how uh, Facebook – is very much aware that uh, it is a, an extremely effective medium for the dissemination of misinformation, and that is very detrimental to the the functioning life of a democracy. And they also know that another of their holdings, Instagram, uh, is is has a negative impact on uh, teenagers and especially teenage girls' uh, emotional well being by encouraging them to share often doctored photographs of themselves in a kind of clamorous pursuit of likes and positive comments and so forth. So the question we have before us is, okay, well, if if these are bad consequences that are somehow harming American life, do we regulate them in the way that we would regulate an enterprise that provided uh, a positive product or function or, or service? but that had negative externalities like, say, pollution. Something that, as a byproduct of this positive thing that we want, uh, it, it needs to be controlled. So, we, you know, we could tax the negative externality, we could outlaw it and make them change something about their business practice to limit it in some way and set standards. But that, that's an open question because then the question becomes, actually, is Facebook, is Instagram actually something that produces the negative effect as a very... Uh, a very consequence of the business practice itself. So more like, if you're a heroin dealer, is the problem with heroin that the people who use your product are just doing it uh, irresponsibly? Well, no, maybe the very fact of taking it is irresponsible, and if that's the case, then we we face the kind of thing that we confront with hard drugs, which we try to prohibit rather than simply regulate, at least in the non-libertarian. Uh, utopia. We do that. And, and uh, you know, uh, uh, George Will, back in the day, uh, used to write very cogent arguments uh, about gambling and how gambling needed to uh, remain uh, outlawed for the same kind of consideration, that it it's not just that some people who gamble, uh, you know, it's bad for them or it, it contributes to negative effects in society, but the very act of inculcating people into a gambling lifestyle, as we might say today, is just bad for them and bad for society intrinsically. And these are questions I don't really answer in the column because I think we haven't answered them as a society and they're really hard because there is a way in which the the business practices of social media companies who make their money by attempting to harvest information about our preferences and then shaping our preferences uh, in order to more effectively sell advertising is in a way, uh, potentially in a different category of enterprise, period. So we have a lot of work to do in doing that kind of first order thinking about even defining what it is these companies are. And only once we've done that can we figure out, well, do we just, let them do what they do, or do we need to jump in and and uh, attempt to control uh, them uh, a little more differently than we have so far, which is as pretty much with nothing at all. It's been pretty much free reign so far.
0: George, 36% of Americans at uh, last count, it's probably gone up since then, uh, regularly get their news from Facebook. So they're getting their news from a source that is completely unregulated in the sense that you know there are no editors there are no people making decisions they're responsible for Mm -hmm. about the truth or falsity of what goes out over Facebook Um, and uh, furthermore Facebook has algorithms that specifically move people based on their preferences toward more and more radical and extreme information Um, so the uh, the company in the person of Mark Zuckerberg has been begging for federal uh, uh, regulation for some time now, uh, and some people are suspicious about that. They say, <laughs> "Well, yeah, he well, he he of course wants to be regulated because he's you know got a trillion million dollars, but uh, his competitors will be harmed and uh, and he'll be benefited." So, what is your sense of all this?
1: My sense is, first of all, that regulating Facebook will help entrench Facebook, whereas if left to its own uh, natural course uh, is apt to go the way of the Roman, Carolingian, Ottoman, Habsburg, British, and Roman empires, Mm -hmm. uh, why do we assume that Facebook is forever and these other empires weren't? Uh, Second, I hear an echo here of earlier moral panics comic books, video games, etc. But particularly in the 1950s, when we went from 1950 with essentially no televisions to 1960, everyone was watching television. There was a great moral panic about the power of advertising. Uh, John Kenneth Galbraith wrote a supremely silly book called The Affluent Society, in which he said, the law of supply and demand is now obviated because manufacturers can manufacture whatever demand they find it convenient to satisfy, such as the power of advertising. His book came out just as the might of uh, merchandising, might of the Ford Motor Company, was put behind the Edsel. It's proved <laughs> to be proved to be inadequate. Uh, I think before, Facebook may be a little bit like cigarettes, but not entirely. Cigarettes are inherently and always harmful when used as intended. Mm-hmm. Facebook Facebook is not like that. Now I'm not the right guy to talk about this because I've never seen Facebook. Literally, uh, I'm told I have a Facebook page. I've never seen it. I'm just not interested. Uh, but uh, it seems to me before we turn to the government, maybe we ought to turn to parents who are sitting around the table and they could talk to and if and heaven forbid you actually have rules that they enforce. Uh, with their children regarding the use of these screens. Uh, because if it isn't done by parents, it is not going to be done well. It might not be done well by parents, but it will only be done well by
0: parents. Linda, one of the proposals that's out there is that uh, the regula- such regulation as, as will exist would simply require Facebook and its competitors to empower parents by giving, making it easy. Of course, you know the kids are going to know how to use these platforms better than their parents. So it would be um, it would be required that the platforms make it you know sort of parent friendly in a way that. And by the way, people use it on their phones even more than on their uh, laptops or, or whatever. So yeah, it would have to be something where the parents could uh, could control it. What what do you think about that? Uh, is that adequate? um, Or what's your view?
3: Well, I'm not quite um, as much of uh, an old uh, fuddy-duddy as George will. I have actually seen Facebook. I have a Facebook page, but I never use it. Um, So I'm not the best person to talk about this, but I will say that I think Bill is absolutely uh, on to, um, uh, sorry, George is absolutely on to something uh, when uh, when he talks about it being the parents' role. The problem is that the parents are also on Facebook and the grandparents are on Facebook. I I don't know how you go about regulating um, an enterprise that is as... um, omnipresent as Facebook is in American culture today. And what you're really talking about is not so much um, the content that is on there as it is the way in which the company is driving the um, participants to pages and information based on algorithms, uh, which, you know, according to the whistleblower this last week, Essentially, try to encourage anger. Try to encourage um, hate uh, in some uh, in some cases, and that, to me, seems more the problem um, than anything. And whether or not there would be a way to uh, regulate um, the company from using these kinds of algorithms, I mean. Again, I, uh, I think George uh, George's point about advertising is correct. I mean, what these platforms are is really a vehicle for delivering advertisements uh, to the people who are on them. Uh, that is their that is their business model. They want to ensure clicks. They want to ensure people, you know, to go to sites um, that will gain you know revenue as a result of uh, being directed there. They want to sell products um, and they use personal information about the participants uh, and their habits in order to skew people in that direction. So if there's ever going to be any kind of regulation, it seems it would have to be in the nature of, how much um, Facebook uh, as an entity can basically spy on us and know what pages we're reading in uh, newspapers, know what publications we read, uh, know enough about us to be able to skew us in these very destructive uh, ways. But uh, I think George also has a point that Facebook, Facebook may not be around forever. Um, and you know, I, I don't know how you, I really don't know how you stop, um, this kind of thing. Maybe, maybe one of the other people on the panel does, but I have to admit I don't.
0: So one wise Silicon Valley had once said, um, if a product is free, you are the product, um, and uh, you know seventy-five percent of Facebook users, according to another poll, did not know that Facebook compiles information on their tastes and other demographic factors about them, which is uh, kind of interesting. Um, but uh, but Bill, I'll come to you on this. You know, one of the worries that people express is: look, um, these algorithms, because because facebook makes its money they call it the attention economy but i don't really think that's any different from other forms of of advertising but in any event they they want to keep your eyeballs on their screen mm-hmm. and in order and they have found that the best way to keep people's eyeballs is to make them angry or upset and the, their algorithms gear people toward that. So they use the example of a 13-year-old girl who goes onto Facebook and and searches for things about healthy eating. And it's really a very short trip they've shown from uh, looking for healthy eating recommendations to getting to sites that promote um, uh, anorexia as a fashion thing. Um, And uh, so that is the kind of Twisting of people's uh, interests and and distorting of their desires that people worry social media is particularly pernicious in doing. Well, Mona, you've hit on exactly the point that I wanted to emphasize. Uh,
4: this is this is terra incognita for a lot of us, particularly those of us of shall we say the older persuasion. And I've been hunting around for. Metaphors, analogies, analogies that can begin to frame my confusion and uncertainty. Uh, in the early days of Facebook, the prevailing image was of a huge virtual Hyde Park where anybody could enter, anybody could speak, anybody could listen. And as you wandered around in this Hyde Park, you would hear somebody saying something interesting or provocative, something you agree with, you tarry to listen, and perhaps when it's time for the question period, you pose a question, you talk back, etc. It's hard to get upset about that, uh, even though there may be some externalities that we need to attend to but suppose that's not exactly the right picture. Suppose there's someone at the gateway or nearby who is saying in effect, uh, I understand that you don't like black people or Jews. Did you know that there are groups right over there uh, of other people who don't like black people? Maybe you'll, you know, maybe you wanna go there and hear some more about their reasons for not liking black people. And so there is, it is not the market exactly that's doing this sorting. It is a form of social engineering being carried out for profit-making purposes by Facebook. Query, is there something actionable in that act? Is, is every form of legislation to regulate that form of social engineering per se unconstitutional or illegitimate? I am not sure that the answer to that question is no. Uh, and I would be a lot happier if we didn't have one of the world's largest corporations directing individuals into echo chambers, which demonstrably make the opinions that you enter with even more intense and less rational over time than they were at the beginning. So I think there is real food for thought here, uh, and I hope an opportunity for action.
0: Yeah, Bill, I, I just want to say plus one uh, to that, because, uh, you know, it, it, it does present one possible explanation for the explosion of of craziness and nonsense that we see in American life now, where an entire, you know, group of the Republican party, a big portion of the Republican Mm -hmm. party believes things that are manifestly false. Um, this, this did not, this was not the case a few years ago. Um, so something has changed about the information environment, uh, and the emotional, uh, the emotional environment that has been that has been created and some of that is you know cable news and people self sorting into their silos but some of it is i i think almost certainly social media as well
4: i will say also mona just to tweak george a little bit it is perfectly true that facebook may not be forever almost certainly won't be It is equally true, going back to his litany of vanished empires, that American democracy probably won't be forever either. And I would much rather hasten the demise of Facebook than the demise of American democracy. I like to think that's the fallacy of the false alternative. Uh, (laughs) I I really do
1: believe we're, we're treading awfully close to the most dangerous thing in the last 150 years of world politics, and that is the denial of human agency. All the great wickednesses of the 20th century were related to people who thought that other human beings could be socially engineered or directed, to use two words that we've just used on this podcast. Again, I I want to go back to the the advertising fear that produced Vance Packard's book, The Hidden Persuaders, that uh, Americans were constantly being manipulated because this fabulous merchandising device, a television set, suddenly appeared in all American living rooms. We should be very careful not to talk about the Facebook users as passive lumps or as atoms that are Shoved around by these these forces. I do. We, once you start talking about people like that, you're halfway to making people like that, to making them feel as though their agency is gone and their responsibility is gone. Uh, it, it just seems to me that uh, Facebook doesn't have that power unless people semi choose to go with the flow and to be drifted along like, like corks bobbing on a stream. So when we talk about Facebook directing people here and there and engineering society, we we begin to talk about human beings as as malleable raw material and all the great horrors in politics in the last hundred and. Fifty years or so have been related to exactly that that premise that people are indeed lumps of matter that can be shaped. I, well, I just don't think it's true.
0: Okay, I, I, let me let me just quickly respond to that because the great villains of the 20th century thought that humans were infinitely malleable. That's right. They were going to make a new Soviet man and all of that. Um, But their goal was to be the manipulators. Um, Here, people are saying, how can we limit the power of the manipulators in some fashion? So it's a little different emphasis, I would suggest.
1: Yes, but the manipulators who were going to make new Soviet man had the Lubyanka prison and the cells down there where they shot people and they had torture chambers. Zuckerberg... Doesn't have that
0: kind of coercive power. He just right. well, he is a synecdoche. I mean, we're talking about all of social media here. I mean, you know, no, but,
1: but all together, they don't have that kind of power,
0: right? Well, um, they may be pushing in a direction though that is extremely unhealthy and uh, worrisome, and and I don't know. It's saying that we might want to ask them to tweak their algorithms so that they don't push people toward the extremes. Um, is, doesn't seem to me to be um, social engineering on a, a vast scale. But, but, but you're,
1: really, not, you're not really contemplating just asking them. You're talking mm-hmm. about a, a legal regime that would, that would coerce them to quit coercing us.
0: And, yes. and My goodness, where do we? What a downward spiral! Okay. Well, there we are. Let us move on to our third and final topic. We are running long, so we're going to have very little time for a huge subject. But um, let me let me start with you, Bill Galston. Um, the old um, the old wisdom was you shouldn't try to um, enact big policy changes on the backs of slim majorities. Um, This Congress is attempting to do exactly that. And, uh, I guess one could say, you know, maybe the affordable care act is the, uh, is the counter example. They passed the affordable care act by a very slim margin, though they did have, they had a much bigger majority in the house and Senate than they have now, but it was, uh, they had to, they had to do all kinds of, uh, ledger domain to get it passed. And, um, and it wasn't initially popular and they lost the House. But in time, it was popular. It was popular to the point where when Republicans finally uh, achieved their majorities and were able to make good on their 10-year-old promises to repeal and replace it, they didn't. Uh, so uh, do you think that's a good bargain for them? I, you know, I really can't
4: predict the future. I can't Produce, I can't predict the consequences of major acts that produce disc, legal acts that produce discontinuities. Uh, to give you one pertinent example, uh, some some social quest, some social issues move strongly in one direction, like same-sex marriage, or with a lag, uh, you know, interracial marriage which enjoyed the support of 5% of the american population in the 1940s and the latest reading is 94%. Uh I will say this. I think that the president and the democrats are overreading the meaning of the 2020 election pretty significantly. Uh and uh they are likely to pay a price for that, at least in the short term. Uh, I I do believe that setting aside the process and looking at the substance, uh, there is much to be said for a, a child allowance that is directed towards working-class and even some middle-class Americans, though not everybody. Uh, and I think there is something to be said for modified versions of much of what is contained in the uh, in the reconciliation bill. But I do think there is wisdom to the old maxim uh, that if you are making great changes on slender majorities, uh, you are like you are likely to pay a price, and one of the prices, as we've seen, is that close to half to, half the country will not even consider accepting what you have, which what you have done over their heads, and will try to reverse it as soon as they have the power to do so, leading to policy instability, years of wasted thought, wasted energy, wasted passion. Uh, over issues that could have been resolved more consensually. So if you ask, if you ask me, uh, should, should these sorts of changes be done without the kind of process that produced 69 votes in the Senate of the United States for the infrastructure bill that's now languishing in the House?
0: The answer is preferably no. Um, George, uh, are Democrats um, attempting to enact a European-style welfare state, <laughs> in addition to in addition to maintaining America's disproportionate uh, spending on the military, uh, and without the middle-class taxes that European countries pay for their welfare states with? Precisely, they want they want half of the European
1: recipe. They, it's the value-added tax that they're they're going to leave out, and this is what's such a telltale symptom of the current Democrats democratic problem. Joe Biden says the country wants this stuff. Well, I know free stuff polls well. That's not a news bulletin. But what he simultaneously says is, by the way, 98.2% of the American people, those of you earning less than $400,000 a year, aren't going to pay a nickel for this. Well, of course, it pays really well then, polls really well then. So uh, it would be much more convincing if he said, you want it, and therefore we're going to help you buy it. Instead, he's saying we're going we're to tax two unpopular entities, the rich and corporations. So there's a, there's a, a, a deeply uh, deceptive sleight of hand going on here. Uh, when they come out and say, uh, yep, the, we have the courage of our convictions, we're going to have a value-added tax for these broad-based uh, benefits, then I'll begin to believe them. It's a little bit analogous to people who say the world is coming to an end because of global warming, but we're opposed to nuclear power. Come on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just want people to get their ends and means together.
0: Uh, Damon, taxing corporations is always very popular. Make those rich corporations pay the bill. But, you know, um, Republicans, I used to like the old fashioned Republicans, people like Mitt Romney, who would say, you know, actually, corporations don't pay taxes. (laughs) Corporations pass along the, uh, the expense to their consumers in the form of they either hire fewer people or they raise their prices or they do something, right? I mean, it's not going to come out of the pockets of wealthy CEOs. That hasn't that reality has not been repealed has it damon
2: no no it hasn't although i i hope you won't mind if i don't really jump on the uh on the corporate tax part of this huge gargantuan pair of bill bills just because it's not the thing i feel most passionately about well and, i don't either
0: and, i'm just saying it's it's not honest no it
2: isn't it isn't although it's also true that that even the Biden plan wouldn't raise corporate taxes up to where they were for quite a long time before trump lowered them. So we're kind of dickering over a few percentage points. And, mm-hmm. and that's, uh, again, from my point of view, not the, the biggest problem. I would be fine to support somewhat higher corporate taxes against the Trump baseline if it were combined with tax hikes in other areas to pay for the raft of spending that uh, Biden and his party is proposing right now. Although it's all very murky. I mean, we don't, none of this has been settled we have what Biden proposed. we have progressives who want one thing and moderates who want something else and everything is sort of up for grabs right now so we don't really know how it'll get on how it will end up unfolding. I mean I'm actually more alarmed by what what the consequences are for Joe Biden's popularity from this mess that he's gotten himself into here. Now, it's not just this bill and how long it's taking and the messy process. Uh, It's also the way the Afghanistan withdrawal uh, unfolded. It's also the fact that uh Biden announced on July 4th that we were he was declaring independence from the COVID-19 pandemic and it obviously didn't go away we had the delta surge and now we're just not sure what's coming in the winter but whatever this mix of things uh Biden's popularity is 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 on a downward slide and it isn't Stopping. I hoped about a month ago that maybe he'd find a new floor around 45, 46 percent approval, but he's now down around 44. And there was a Quinnipiac poll yesterday on Wednesday came out this week that was really just brutal like on a series of issue areas as well as personal traits he is underwater uh, they range from close to even on handling the pandemic to all the way down to on immigration 25 percent approve 67 disapprove situation on the Mexican border 23 approve 67 disapprove and the all-important um, more than half of Americans, which is 55%, now say the Biden administration is not competent in running the government. That is bad. And is it going to be reversed when finally uh, uh, we get a bill or two bills out of this and they get passed? I'm not so sure about that either, given the fact that another poll from uh, Politico and Morning, um, uh, what's that called? The uh, Morning, Consult. Yeah, Morning Consult poll this week also showed that, uh, you know, most Americans don't even credit Biden for the $300 per child uh, check that we're getting. Every month, uh, right. they did they, credit they, the they, Democrats, though. They barely, like, fifty-two yeah. percent, I believe, credited yeah. the Democrats, and it was like thirty-eight percent for Biden. That's that's basically saying Democrats credit the Democrats for that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. I mean, that doesn't seem to to uh, uh, pr- pr- produce much confidence on my part that as soon as we get a bill passed, everyone's going to you know stand up and applaud. So, this is really risky business that Biden is. Dealing dealing. Dealing with and given the threat of a uh, of a a Trump run again in 2024, the idea that uh, Biden has gotten himself into this fix uh, makes me pretty nervous. So, uh,
0: I could be happier at the moment. (laughs) Right. So Linda Damon's nervous uh, because the alternative is the orange Mar-a-Lago man who's, you know, preparing to uh, run uh, his, his revenge race. Um, now, when you look at 2024 and you consider what will be important to voters, I would submit to you that the following things are possibilities. The state of the economy, the state of the pandemic, Inflation, the situation at the border, the crime rate, um, and possibly these huge bills that the Democrats have been spending all of their attention on. Yeah,
3: yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, here we have a reconciliation bill that is 2,465 pages long that has dramatic changes um, in entitlements, um, granting new entitlements. Uh, You know, uh, Senator Manchin has been given uh, a great deal of grief uh, by the left for having talked about uh, this as, you know, lead, leading us into a more of an entitlement uh, state, Uh, but it is that. And the fact is that normally when you have these big kinds of changes, um, certainly when you had Medicare, when you had the civil rights laws, you had months of hearings and debates. Uh, You had floor debates in the House and the Senate. You gave the American people time to be able to digest what was being proposed, to decide whether they liked it or didn't like it. Uh, You had lawmakers able to think through uh, very carefully what the effects of the legislation uh, were going to be. And here you have none of that. And this has been the pattern, I think, since uh, Obama and Obamacare. Uh, I've said on this program before um, that I've changed my mind about whether or not uh, some sort of national health program uh, was a good idea or a bad idea. I now think it was a good idea, but I do not think the way it came to be uh, was uh, the right method um, to achieve it. And I think you're going to see the same thing here. So it's not a surprise that the American people are going to be thinking about things other than what's in this grand uh, reconciliation bill. They haven't really heard very much about what's in it. And they certainly haven't had time to think through its implications. And that's really the big problem uh, today, I think, in Congress, is that they spend all too much time uh, bickering uh, over uh, the price tag of bills that they haven't even fully vetted and considered. And this is just not the way to run uh, a democracy in in my view. I I think that, you know, we really, when you're talking about big changes, whether on climate or childcare or entitlements for the elderly, uh, that these are things that have to be thought through. And we've had none of that. And so of course, uh, Biden's not gonna get any credit uh, for it. And the bigger picture, uh, exactly what you described is gonna be the issue that's gonna determine um, the election in 2024. And the way it's looking right now, I don't see anybody able to challenge uh, Donald Trump in the Republican Party. And I'm not altogether uh, confident that if we have a Donald Trump versus uh, Joe Biden uh, presidential election in 2024, that the outcome will be the same as it was last time.
0: Okay, Linda, I've caught you out. Earlier, you said you were not a fuddy-duddy, but you are.
3: <laughs> You're saying you think things should be thought through. And no, I said I wasn't as much of a fuddy-duddy as George will. That's a slight qualification.
0: All right. Well, look, I, I will just add one thing, which is I do think that, um, that er, er, agreeing with everything you said, but uh, one of the reasons we find ourselves in this position is the Abuse of the filibuster. When the filibuster became a tool for absolutely everything, demanding that everything had to pass by a um, supermajority, the... um, party that had a majority, if they didn't have, uh, you know, a two-thirds majority or, or a sixty-vote majority, rather, um, would uh, is kind of forced to throw everything that they want to achieve into these huge bills that they could pass on reconciliation without uh, having to endure a filibuster. So that is, I think, part of part of the mess uh, is is the overuse of of the filibuster. And by the way, this week, Mitch McConnell. Um, because he was apparently frightened of uh, moves and talk among uh, in the in the Democratic Caucus of possibly uh, ending the filibuster um, in order to deal with the debt limit, uh, caved on that issue and said he would he would not filibuster an attempt to raise the debt ceiling um, for, temporarily only until December, but at least. We're no longer, I think, while we were speaking today, they probably uh, raised it so that uh, at least for a couple more months, we don't have to worry about defaulting. All right. We now come to our final segment. I'm very sorry we've run long. So uh, let us get to our highlights and lowlights of the week. Bill Galston. This will be simple,
4: Mona. I'll make it fast. Uh, My highlight of the week was receiving and reading George Will's latest book. Uh, there are 192, if my count is correct, entries in the book. And so I asked myself at the end of this cheerful process, what was my favorite item? Uh, I narrowed it down to two. The second place finisher was an item I can commend all under the title of Aristotle and the Bikini Clad Baristas. Uh, I will leave it to your imagination (laughs) how that particular how that particular one spun out but my favorite was an item called baseball's common law uh like George I am uh a white male of a certain age and therefore or this is almost a syllogism a baseball fan uh and uh His distinction between the laws of baseball and the common law of baseball, otherwise the norms of baseball, uh, maps very neatly onto contemporary discussions of the ills of our constitutional democracy, where what is not written but was once enforceable is now both unwritten and unenforceable. Uh, to the great detriment of everybody. one line from this essay must suffice. When a reporter asked Gaylord Perry's five-year-old daughter if her father threw a spitball, she replied quote "It's a hard slider. Now that is formative <laughs> parental <laughs> education for. <people>. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay, thank you. Damon Linker. Okay. uh, This is a
2: little uh, less lighthearted than that. Uh, This firmly goes in the category of low light of the week. Put it uh, in the folder marked uh, what conservatism has become, at least intellectual conservatism has become in 2021 America. Uh, You know, I haven't been a fan of the guy in quite a long time, but Roger Kimball is a very, uh, you know, very respected name on the right in this country the editor and now publisher of The New Criterion, which used to be uh, a pretty impressive cultural periodical. Uh, he's drifted over uh, to the Trumpian side of things over the last five years, and uh, in, he's recently contributed a, a, a talk that has now been published uh, with um, Hillsdale College, which is also has a very storied history among conservatives, a uh, small college in Michigan that is uh, very uh, very skewed toward conservatism in its education and uh, has uh, has done a good job of educating young conservatives for a long time, but uh, Kimball gave this talk there uh, in September. It's now been published in uh, Hillsdale's online magazine, Imprimis, uh, which apparently reaches uh, about six million people, uh, or has six million subscribers, no less. This is titled The January 6th Insurrection Hoax, and I will merely read a couple of sentences from it. It was hard to pick out a passage, but I'll choose this one. As the years go by, historians If the censors allow them access to the documents and give them leave to publish their findings, may well count the 2016 presidential election as the last fair and open democratic election in U.S. history. I know we are not supposed to say that. I know that the heads of Twitter and Facebook and other woke guardians of the status quo call this the big lie and do all they can to suppress it. But every honest person knows that the 2020 election was tainted so uh there you go Roger Kimball's uh onward descent <laughs>
0: into the mire continues. Thank you, Damon. Um, Taking nothing away from your point, I would just like to state that that six million figure for subscribers is dubious. I used to receive imprimis for years, never paid for it once. So they have some other system other than paid subscribers. I'm not surprised.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Linda Chavez. Well, I'll just add to that, Mona, that uh, I get three copies of In Primus uh, whenever <laughs> it's put out. So, and I've never subscribed either. So, um, that was a real downer from Damon. Um, I want to give a highlight, and I'll tell you the highlight of my week is uh, being on the same program as George Will, somebody I have. Uh, very long admired. And I will say that he has elevated the whole tone of this discussion. Mona, I don't ever remember a podcast in which the words synecdoche and leisure domain were used <laughs> in less than <laughs> one hour on the podcast. So I credit yes. uh, George Will for uh, having elevated that. Yes. Uh, his comment also about agency uh, really fits in well with the uh, piece that I want to point out. This is not a new piece. It was written back on May 10th, um, and it's in Substack, and it's by John McWhorter. And he uh, says, can we please ditch the term systemic racism? He says, as a linguist, I know we can't, but systemic racial inequalities can almost never be undone by getting rid of the racism. And I think what it really points to, and this is uh, the point with the, uh, the notion about agency, one of the biggest problems in my view is that when you talk about systemic racism, what you do is take away uh, the agency of those racist and racist actions that actually do take place. Um, and I think that's uh, a travesty. So I recommend this piece by John McWhorter. I think he does a very nice job of uh, talking about uh, what some of the problems are with even the term systemic racism, which means very little. Um, and uh, John McWhorter, if you're listening, we still
0: the, the invitation to come on this podcast and be our guest is still outstanding.
1: <laughs> um, George Will. Um, highlight of the week, I'll be really brief. The highlight of the week for me was reading Alan C. Gwell's new biography of Robert E. Lee. It's a cool, dry-eyed uh, assessment of someone who lived in situations he did not particularly like and did not choose and acted in ways that uh, he thought were honorable and Guzo says, not really. Uh, It also demonstrates that Robert E. Lee was extremely boring. He never seems to have had an interesting thought <laughs> that, that he either wrote down or suggested to someone. I mean, he's, he's an all-time overrated figure. Anyway, the low light of the week is uh, uh, another development in the English language. The Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, and there actually is such a thing, has said it's not good enough to call a woman a birthing person. Their, <laughs> their phrase is, Human milk feeding individual. Oh. So add that to your, so that's my low light.
3: <laughs> yes.
0: Oh, yes. That is even worse than pregnant people, which has been bothering me for some time. Oh, all right. Well, my highlight um, is from Noah Smith, uh, who is available on Substack uh, on his um, column called No Opinion. And uh, it's called Nuclear or Solar. And um as a longtime fan of nuclear power as a solution to climate woes, I was interested to see that uh, in this piece, that uh, Smith talks about the dramatic progress that has been made in solar technology and batteries. Um, the price drop um, in the cost of producing and distributing and so on. Solar modules has been from 1976 to 2019 is dropped in cost by a factor of 250. Um, And over the last 10 years, the price of solar powered electricity has dropped by 89%. Also very significant. And also apparently we are developing all kinds of new batteries uh, that will help to store solar power. Um, It isn't the uh, complete solution to uh, fossil fuel dependence, but it is a huge step in the right direction. And I want to emphasize one more time: I now know that there's a name for what I am, which is a techno optimist. Um, that is, you can be as realist as you like about human nature and about tribalism and about all the 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 various flaws that human beings have. But uh, when it comes to technology, we are an amazing species. And um, you don't really need to go very far uh, other than no opinion on Substack to get copious evidence of this. And uh, it is encouraging. With that, I want to thank the great George Will uh, who, for joining us again. Uh, I recommend his book, American Happiness and Discontents. And thank you all for your fantastic letters and also for your fantastic ratings on iTunes. This week I went and checked out some of them. Wow. I mean, it almost brought tears to my eyes. Thank you so much. and uh, We are so appreciative and um, keep it up. And we will return next week as every week.